This is our final week uh, studying uh, through the book of Exodus. Next week, we're going to begin a a new series, uh, jumping into the New Testament book of Hebrews. But today, uh, we're looking at the last six chapters of Exodus. And as we've been walking through this book, our our theme has been, He leads us out to draw us in. And and I think, I hope anyway, as we've walked through uh, this book over the past several weeks, even last few months, uh, I hope it's become very, very clear what it is that God leads us out of, right? He he leads us out of slavery. He leads us out of sin, out of death. He, He leads us out of those things to draw us in. And, and maybe the question is, to what, right? And so as we come to the end of the book, my hope is that it will be just as clear what it is that he draws us into. Uh, that's what we're seeking to unpack as we dig into these final chapters, Exodus chapters 35 through 40. We'll be looking at Exodus 40, uh, verses 16 through 38 for our reading this morning. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles, uh, wherever you're at, stand with me for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. This Moses did, according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the tabernacle on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed, as the Lord commanded Moses." And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this opportunity to to 
be in your word uh, for you to speak to us, Lord. And we pray by your spirit, by your grace, you would enable us to see um, what you have rescued us out of, but also what you've rescued us into. Help us to see the, the glory, um, the, the glorious presence that you invite us into, your glorious presence, Lord, the relationship that you invite us into, the life you call us to live for you in your glory. God, we pray that you, you'd help us to see, you'd help us by your spirit to, to, to be your people and to live as your people in every way for your glory and for our joy and for the good of many others. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. You may have a seat. Well, following the events of the golden calf and Moses' intercession for the people uh, and God's kind of reconfirming of the covenant uh, with the people in, in Exodus chapters 32 through 33, we, we find chapters 35 to 39 really sort of kind of repeat uh, almost exactly much of what we looked at back in chapters 25 to 31. So, so why the repetition? A point is being made to us here. God gives instructions for the construction uh, of the tabernacle. Say that five times fast. Instructions for the construction of the tabernacle in chapters 25 through 31. God's desire is in that, to dwell with his people. But before the plans even get put into action... The people wreck everything with their idolatry in creating a golden calf to worship. Uh, Moses pleads with God, of course, on behalf of the people, and God extends grace and mercy and reaffirms his covenant and his desire to dwell with his people. And so chapters 35 to 39 describe the actual construction of the tabernacle. But it's, it's strikingly parallel. The, the, really, the only change is it changes from commands to a description of what was done. And the point in the repetition is clear. The construction exactly matches the instructions. Repeatedly, we're told that everything was done as the Lord commanded Moses. In chapter 40, the work is complete. Um, the tabernacle is all put together and the glory of the Lord fills it. God now dwells with his people in the tabernacle. And, and we're meant to see the deeper connection and the deeper meaning of what's happening here. If we look closely at, at, this, at these chapters and especially at chapter 40 that we just read, we see an echo, we see an anticipation, and we see an invitation. First, we see an echo, right? The construction of the tabernacle here in these closing chapters is not simply an echo of Exodus chapters 25 through 31 and the instructions that were given. It actually reaches much further back than that. What we have in the tabernacle is an echo of the Garden of Eden. You see, if you really think about it, the Garden of Eden was a sanctuary. It was a sanctuary. It was the place where the presence of God dwelled and where he dwelled with his people. God's desire from the opening pages of Genesis to the final pages of Revelation is to have a people for himself and, and to dwell with them and be their God. In the beginning, in the garden, the first man and the first woman were to live with God, living for him, worshiping him with their whole lives. There, there was a covenant in the garden. They, they were to have dominion over the earth. God put them in charge and trusted them with dominion over all the rest of creation. And they were to be fruitful and multiply and fill it. 
They were to create and they were to cultivate. They were to develop the creation that God had made to the glory of God, to the glory of God in worship of God. There was also a law. They were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was their commandment. But the garden, the garden was a sanctuary. It was a tabernacle. It was a temple where the presence of God dwelled with his people. And so the tabernacle in Exodus 40, filled with God's glorious presence, is an echo of the garden. As we, and we've already seen another echo that kind of takes us back to the early chapters of Genesis last week as well. As you think about Exodus through this lens, the golden calf incident is an echo of the fall in Genesis 3. In fact, the golden calf is a classic fall story. God's clear command is broken by the priest left in charge. This time, instead of Adam, it's Aaron. And when confronted, the blame is shifted to someone else. Adam, of course, in Genesis 3, he blames Eve, you know, the woman that you gave to me. And in fact, he's actually blaming God as well. And Aaron, in turn, blames the Israelites. They made me do it, right? There's again exposure of shame. There's a curse. There's death. And ultimately, again, there's the separation of God from his people. It's the low point in Israel's story thus far. Yet Moses, the mediator, intercedes for Israel and pleads with God to continue to dwell among his people. The Lord relents, shows Moses his glory, or really the afterglow of his glory, revealing his name. That's the real revelation of his glory that he gives Moses, and renews his covenant before coming to dwell now in the tabernacle. This echo of the garden and the fall and now seeing God's glory settling on and filling the tabernacle. It's a powerful testimony to Moses and to the the rest of the Israelites of God's faithfulness to his promises. It's a testimony to them. It's a testimony to us of God's heart and his desire to have a people for himself and to dwell among them. It's a testimony that God will find a way to deal with the sin that separates us from him. He will find a way to set us free, to lead us out, to draw us in, into fellowship and relationship with him, to draw us in to his presence. And we can find even greater hope as we see that there's not only an echo here, but also an an anticipation. Um, Last week, we talked a little bit about how the tabernacle anticipates Jesus. We referenced John 1.14, where it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And how that language in John chapter one, in the original, the Greek, uh, the word made flesh dwelling among us is literally saying that Jesus tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent among us. Jesus is the true tabernacle, the place where God meets with humanity. But Exodus 40 And the tabernacle filled with God's glorious presence isn't so much uh, anticipating Christ's first coming as it is his second. That is, it is looking forward to the new heavens and new earth. It's pointing forward, anticipating the moment of new creation when Jesus returns and recreates this world. 
Now, when it comes to thinking about the future, uh, and I'm definitely kind of simplifying this down, but, but essentially there, there are three main ways, three primary ways that people think about the future. In the first view, and some of you who have a church background, this may be the view that you have been brought up in and taught more or less, but, and I'm going to have some fun with it. But in this first view is that Jesus is going to return with like the infinity gauntlet and he's going to snap and the world is just destroyed, right? It just totally explodes. It's annihilated, but not before the believers in Christ are snatched up into the sky, right? Raptured so we don't don't have to deal with any of that world-destroying stuff. Uh, that's the first view, heaven without earth. And while I'll, I'll, I'll say this, and, and hopefully you'll be kind and gracious to me as well, there are Bible-believing, Jesus-loving people who, who think this way, who believe this way. I personally do not believe that this is biblically accurate. But if you, you do believe this way, that there's heaven without earth, well then, that you're you know, sort of raptured to just play harps in the clouds, then you tend to have you know, and treat uh, the, or the earth with very little concern. Right? If you think the earth is going to get junked in the, at the end of time, then what's the point? Why bother caring for it? Why should you care? Why should, why should you care for the planet? Why should you care about beauty and creativity? It's all getting destroyed in the end. What's the point? Again, I don't think that this is the biblical view but it, but it shapes you if it is your view. And it's the first view that we're talking about here. The second of these three views is earth without heaven. And honestly, in the world we live in, the culture that we live in, this is increasingly the dominant view. And this is the like eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die view. It's essentially, the, this world is all that there is. So let's get as much out of it while we can right? You, you better get yours while you can because this is it. This is all that there is. And, and if, it, if, if someone in the culture sort of does believe in some sort, sense of afterlife, well, of course the assumption is, well, I'll be in heaven because I'm a good person. You know, I, I'm better. I don't, I don't have robbed any banks or killed anyone. I'm a good person, so I'll be there. This is the dominant view of our culture, most people in, in, in the world that we live in live as if there is no judgment that is coming, ever. Duty does not matter near as much as doing whatever makes you feel good. And so the culture lives for, the, for present pleasure because they believe that this world is the deepest reality. And as believers, it's far too easy for us to just sort of fall into this way of thinking and living focusing on this present age instead of living for eternity and that as yet unseen age to come. This leads to thinking and living as if today is all there is. So you better do whatever you want while you can. Forget the cost. Just do it. You know, so, so the, the, the mentality is, why would you stay in that marriage that has trouble? right? Don't say no to any of those desires or impulses because it's your life and you better get all you can while you can. That's the second view. And then there's, then there's the third view of, of the future. And this is the anticipation of the tabernacle here in Exodus 40. And I believe it's the biblical view. 
the view that is held throughout the entirety of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. And that is the view of heaven on earth. This is the future that the tabernacle anticipates. God created the universe. He created the world. He created everything in it good and right and beautiful. But sin and rebellion wrecked it. Sin fractured God's good creation. But even from God's immediate response after the fall in Genesis 3, God set in motion a plan to save his people out of slavery, out of sin and death. From that moment, he set in motion a plan to re-Edenize the world. The tabernacle and everything in it is meant to communicate this reality to us. That God is restoring, he is re-Edenizing the world. He's bringing us back to the beauty of life as he designed it to be in him. The tabernacle serves as an affirmation of God's promise to dwell among his people. And the fulfillment of that promise involves God recreating the earth as his dwelling place with a recreated humanity in a recreated time. The tabernacle serves as a microcosm of that recreated earth. Israel serves as a microcosm of that recreated humanity. And the Sabbath is a microcosm of that recreated time. Heaven on earth, new creation. It's a biblical view. The tabernacle and its elements are full of symbolism, helping us anticipate this reality that God is working toward. The ark shows us that the new creation is the place where God reigns. The table in the tabernacle shows us that it's a place where God feasts with his people. The lampstand shows us that it's a place where we walk in God's light. The law shows us that the new creation is a place where creation is reordered. The priest shows us new creation is a place where we can freely come into God's holy presence. At the end of the book of Revelation, John's vision of that new creation we find all sorts of echoes of the tabernacle. This is what we read in Revelation 21, one through four. He says there, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And as you continue reading the rest of Revelation chapter 21 and 22, you'll just find echo after echo of both the garden and the tabernacle. And the vision is clear. Heaven on earth. Heaven comes down so that heaven and earth are united and God will dwell with his people in perfect relationship for all eternity. This is the future to which the tabernacle is pointing us, the future that it's anticipating. And this view of the future liberates us to receive this world as a good gift from God, even while at the same time we grieve over its brokenness and look forward to its transformation. 
It's a world where yesterday I, I, I enjoyed, hopefully like you, a beautiful sunny day. Went out for a lovely walk with my wife uh, through uh, the golf course park area near our house. Um, I enjoyed some delicious food. I enjoyed quality time with my kids. Yet in the same day, in these same moments, in another city, a dear friend of ours is, is at the very end of her battle with cancer and, and facing death. This world is simultaneously a world that proclaims the glory of God and cries out for redemption and renewal. It's a world that simultaneously pours forth speech, proclaiming God's glory, while at the same time, the world waits with eager longing, groaning for Jesus to return and usher in that new creation, the restoration of this broken world. The tabernacle anticipates Christ's return and the renewing and the restoring of all things. And that gives us tremendous hope. It enables us to enjoy the good gifts of this world. And it it moves us to care for creation. It, It moves us to create and celebrate its beauty with great works of art while we long for the day when all will be made right and the sad things will come untrue and we will truly dwell in the fullness of God's glorious presence. That's the anticipation. But there's also an invitation. Look again, Exodus 40, verses 34 through 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Twice in these two verses, we're told that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, so much so that even Moses is forced to evacuate. He's not allowed to be in there. And there's a reality here that the tabernacle filled with God's glory, but without any people, is not the ideal scenario that God is after. But the good news is that Exodus 40 is not the end of the story. When we look at our Bibles and we see the end of Exodus chapter 40, and then on the next page, as I'm looking at mine right here, we see the beginning of the book of of Leviticus. And we tend to see them as separate books, separate stories, separate things here that they are not connected. They're just separated, right? This one's over. Now this one will start and who knows where it'll start and where it'll it'll go, right? Uh, But in reality, in reality, Exodus is really book two of a five-part book at the beginning of the Bible. It's sort of like the episodes in Star Wars, right? Episodes one through nine are supposed to be one story. And again, I I don't know if we all agree on that. I don't know if I agree with that. But us purists would probably at least be willing to agree episodes four through six, one story. They're not like three separate stories. They're one story that, that flows together. Episode four leads right into five and five leads right into six. And w- without them, you, you lose the story. It's the same thing here, same way here with Exodus and the rest of these first five books. And, and very interesting, the ne- very next thing we read in the first two verses of Leviticus is an invitation to approach God through sacrifice that it is through sacrifice that we can experience the glory of God. The system of sacrifice that's introduced here in the Old Testament points forward to the coming of Jesus, of course. And Jesus comes as the embodiment of the tabernacle, God with us. 
And he comes to make it possible for sinful man to dwell in the presence of a holy God. How? And Jesus comes. And after living the sinless life that, that you and I never could, he goes to the cross to be the once and for all sacrifice for our sins, for your sin. There he died in your place, suffering the just penalty that you deserve for your sin. Not just physical death, but the the cosmic suffering, the full cup of God's wrath poured out on him in your place. He paid your debt in full, the once and for all sacrifice for your sin. To display that he was an acceptable sacrifice, Jesus was raised on the third day victorious over sin and death. He is, Jesus is the sacrifice that is needed to enable you to live in God's presence. And so through faith in Jesus, there's an invitation to turn from your sin, to trust in Christ, to trust in his finished work that you may receive not only forgiveness for your sin, but also enjoy God's glorious presence in a, this saving relationship. But there's more to this invitation than, than simply a, a personal one-on-one relationship with God. You see, Jesus saves us into the family of God, the church. And in this in-between time that we live in, where where Christ has come and inaugurated his kingdom, but he has not yet returned to usher it in in its fullness. It is the church, the church, not the building the church, the people, the church. That's what the church is. It's the church that has replaced the tabernacle as the place where where people meet God as we proclaim and live out the gospel. It's a church that's now called to point people to the hope and reality of what will be in the new creation. Like the ark, the church is now the place where God reigns. Like the table, the church is now the place where God feasts with his people as we, as we share in the Lord's Supper. Like the lampstand, the, the church is now shining forth the light of the gospel. Like the law, the church is the place where creation is being reordered. And like the priest, it's the church that is now free to enter into God's holy presence. The goal of every church should be for the unbelieving world around us to to come in and take notice and say, God is really among you. He is really among you and at work here. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, uh, verses 21 and 22, he says that in Christ, the church is being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And he says in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? These are not addressed to individuals. These are addressed to churches. The church is now to live as God's people in God's presence. And Exodus gives us some practical guidance as to what that invitation involves and what it looks like to live as God's people in God's presence. That's what you've been drawn into. First and foremost, like the Israelites, we are meant to enjoy God's presence. We're not saved to a checklist of have we read our Bible? Have we, have we said our prayers? Have we done this, done that? We're invited to enjoy God's good, glorious, gracious presence. To, to look at the cross and see how he loves us and, and to just uh, 
worship him with all of our affections, to let our affection for him drive us to want to read his word and know more about him and and how we can live for him, to want to communicate with him through prayer, to hear his voice speak to us and guide us and, and share our heart's desires with him, to want to fellowship with him and live our lives for him in every way. We're meant to enjoy God's presence, to rejoice in the reality that he saved us to be his people, to enjoy his goodness and grace as we think about what he saved us from, to pursue knowing him and enjoying him in deep personal relationship with Jesus and in community with his people. And just as God enabled and motivated his people here in Exodus to give of their possessions and their talents to build the tabernacle, So the Spirit blesses us with gifts and moves us to be generous with our time, talent, and treasure. As we join Jesus in in his ministry of restoration to this world, he's given us his Holy Spirit. He sent the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the grave dwells within the life and the body of every Christian. And his Spirit has blessed you with spiritual gifts, natural talents, all of that, to use for the building up of his kingdom, to make Jesus known to others, to invite them to know life and enjoy God's presence with us through faith in Christ. So there's an invitation to use your gifts, to give of your resources for the sake of Christ's mission. The whole church has been called to do works of ministry and to join in that work with what God has given you. Next, the Israelites were set free by God to, to follow and worship God. You know, whenever the cloud is taken up, we're told here at the end of Exodus 40, they set out. But when it wasn't taken up, they stayed put. They followed God's lead. It wasn't like, oh, this is a nice campground. We'll just stay here for a while. Oh, the cloud's on the move. We're going. We're following. His presence was to guide their every move. Exodus shows us how, how God's people are redeemed from making bricks for Pharaoh so that they might serve and worship God. And all the way back earlier in Exodus, we pointed out that that language that's used to describe their service of Pharaoh, right? Their their slavery to Pharaoh and making bricks, is the same word that's used to describe their service and worship of God. They're not set free to live for themselves. They're set free to live for God's glory, it's the same for you and me. We're set free from, from living for ourselves. We're set free from living uh, to, to, in our slavery to our selfish desires and worshiping false idols so that we might live as slaves of righteousness. That's true freedom, by the way. Not, not freedom with no constraints, but with the right constraints to be governed by God, to be under his rule and his authority, to submit to it joyfully to follow him. He is to be our Lord, leading and guiding us by the Holy Spirit. Lastly, it's an invitation to live as a gospel outpost. God had told Abraham in Genesis 12 that he would make him into a great nation so that through him he might bless all nations. The reality of the new creation that the tabernacle anticipates reminds us of the urgency of this moment that we're in. Jesus is returning someday. We don't know when. He's returning to judge the living and the dead and usher in the fullness of his kingdom as he renews and restores all things. Those who are in Christ 
will be, will be drawn all the way in to his glorious presence, to live with him in glory forever. Those, of, those who don't know Christ will be ushered into eternal judgment and separation from God. There's an urgency. God's sovereign means that he has chosen to work through, to call his people to himself, is his church. It's you, his people, living and proclaiming the gospel. We're invited to join Jesus on mission, on his mission of restoration, by living the gospel out in community, in the way that we love and serve and care for one another, in the way that we forgive one another. Oh, when you can lay down a grudge and embrace an enemy, that speaks volumes to the world around us. And we're called to share the message of the gospel to the people who need to hear it, both as we love and serve and meet practical, physical needs like Jesus did, but also, and importantly, as we open up our mouths and share the message of Christ, sharing how he saved us, both what he saved us out of and what he saved us into. That's our invitation as a church, to enjoy God's glorious presence through the person and work of Christ, to, to use our gifts uh, and resources in his service, to live for his glory as we serve and worship him with all of our lives and to proclaim the glory of his name. The glorious name that he revealed to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's his name. And that name finds its fullness, its embodiment, the glory on display in the name of Jesus. We proclaim that name so that others may know him may know Christ and enjoy his presence, especially on that day when he returns. And the whole earth will be filled on that day with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. On that day, we'll all see Jesus face to face and we'll see in full what Moses was only able to get a glimpse of. May we live our lives with that reality in mind for God's glory, for our joy, and for the joy of many, many more people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you help us to live as your people. Help us to be a faithful presence in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. Holy Spirit, would you equip us and give us courage to use our gifts and to open our mouths to share about Jesus. Help us to live as God's people and to be known for our generosity, for our compassion for others, and for our love of God's word and Christ's glory. Jesus, may we delight in your presence and invite others to know you and enjoy your glorious presence with us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.